Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. We are wrapping up a four-week series on science and scripture called All Creation Sings, and I have loved this series. This has been so much fun for me, Um, and it clearly has struck a nerve. It is uh, not very often that Jim preaches a message and I get emails. So people are, people are thinking about this one. We have had a bigger response to this uh, message series than uh, any that I've seen in the five years that I've been on staff here. Um, so I, we expected this. We expected that we were going to say some things that stretched some people, some things that people found controversial, and we knew we would get some emails. What we did not expect, but maybe we should have, is how positive the response has been. The number of enthusiastic, grateful emails have outweighed the concerned ones nine to one. Uh, And even just walking through our campuses, we have been stopped by people saying, this has been amazing, this has been incredible for me. Uh, A lot of people are simply feeling freed up to study science without fear, because they know there's no conflict between what God says and what God made in the world. People are saying things like, I work in a science-related field, and I've never felt validated by a church until right now. I've talked with people who are brand new to church. They've never been to church before very recently. And they said, this is one of my big questions. This is one of the things I was wondering about. And the fact that you addressed it like this clears things up for me to keep taking steps with all of this. The the comment, though, that we've heard over and over again, and the one that I think is the most important, is people saying this. My son, my sister, my friend, this issue is the reason they walked away from church, from God, from Jesus, that this is the reason they won't even consider what Jesus has to say. But I shared this series with them, and now they're listening. We've cleared away an unnecessary barrier between people and Jesus. And that's the point of this. That's the reason we want to do this, to say this is what Scripture actually says, and here are the things that you don't need to have stand between you and Christ if this is one of those things. Now, the last three weeks have been mostly about the intellectual questions about science and scripture. Uh, What can we believe? What should we believe? How do these things interact? And we've been doing a lot of thinking. This week, we're turning more towards the heart-oriented questions. The, The question of how should the study of science affect the way we relate to God, our spiritual lives? To do that, we're going to be looking at Psalm 148. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Psalms. It's right smack in the middle of the Bible, and this is one of the last chapters in the book. Uh, The book of Psalms is actually a songbook. It's a collection of the greatest hits of worship songs from across Israel's history. Uh, And these are the songs that Jesus actually sang. Uh, When he was growing up, as he would gather with people, as he gathered with his disciples, these are the songs that he sang to worship God. And they're the songs that have been sung by the early church and all throughout the ages by people who loved God. Christ and, and, and love God. So uh, we're going to look at this one uh, because it gives us an example of a heart posture we're supposed to take towards God and his world. Let me read it to you. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his heavenly hosts. Praise him sun and moon. Praise him all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, 
you great sea creatures in all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and women, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. And he has raised up for his people a horn, the praise of his faithful servants of Israel, the people close to his heart. Praise the Lord. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've got one big idea I want you to get today. We're going to look at it in two parts, but here's the big idea. Because all creation sings, science is good for your soul. We're going to start with the first half of that. Because all creation sings. This is the first half. One of the basic principles when you are reading a passage of scripture, if you're trying to figure out what it's about, is to look for repeated words and phrases. Now, in this passage, there is a word that is repeated quite a few times. Did you pick up what it was? Praise, that's right. Someone just shouted it out. Exactly. Praise, praise, praise. 13 times this passage uses the word praise. It's actually how the passage begins and how the passage ends. When you're reading the Bible and you see a passage that has bookends like that, often where it starts and where it ends tells you the theme of the entire thing. Do do you guys know what the Hebrew word for praise the Lord is? It's hallelujah. Hallelujah. Maybe you've been around church world, maybe just for a little bit. Maybe you've been around for a while and you have heard people sort of call out hallelujah. And you're like, what? What in the world does that mean? Uh, It's kind of odd that we shout something out in an ancient language that none of us actually speaks. uh, But we do around here. Um, And now you know, hallelujah simply means praise the Lord. That's how the psalm begins and the ends. And that's what this passage is all about. It's about praise. What do we mean when we talk about praise? Praise is what happens when the arrow of our hearts points at something and says, wow, look at that. That's incredible. And if you're going through your day, this actually happens all the time. These moments, at least if it's a good day, you have these moments where you notice something and you say, oh, that's really cool. Look at that. That sunset is beautiful. Oh, look at that. That movie was really, really good. Look at that. I am so proud of my sister for the way she played that basketball game. Look at that. That's what praise is. And I would guess that about half of the joy of life simply comes from looking up away from ourselves and seeing something that's praiseworthy and saying, wow, that brings me a lot of joy just to see that. Actually, one of the signs that sin has busted up our hearts is the fact that we do that so rarely. So much of the time we're consumed with ourselves that we don't even notice the beauty and the goodness all around us. But that's what praise is. There's a specific form of praise the Bible talks about most, which is worship. Worship is when we praise something as ultimate, even more glorious than anything else around it. It's when we point at something, we say, no matter what else is present, you should look at that because it is so beautiful, so amazing. What can compare with that? What could satisfy us more than that? That's what worship is. When we worship something, it becomes the magnetic north of our lives. If you want to know what you are worshiping, you should ask, what am I pursuing? What am I chasing after in life? What am I going after? That's what you worship. There's actually another word that's repeated a lot in this passage. Did you notice what it was? It's the word all. The word all. Ten times this passage talks about all of his angels, all of his heavenly hosts, all of the shining stars, all, 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 all. This is a psalm about all of creation from top to bottom. 
It's actually structured that way. The first half of the passage is all about the heavenly host, the stars and the sun and the angels up above. The second half talks about everything that's down below, the land and the sea and the creatures that are in them. Heaven and earth and everything in between, all creation singing praise to God. But what does that mean? What does it mean for creation to praise? I mean, it it makes sense that angels and humans can praise God, but what about mountains or the sun and the moon and hail and all these other things that are mentioned there? I mean, clouds are not conscious and stones do not sing. So in what sense can they actually praise God? Well, one way to think about creation praising is to think of creation kind of like an arrow. Creation is pointing at something beyond itself. It points at the God who made it. And so creation actually draws our attention so that we will praise God. Creation praises by prompting us to praise. But there's actually another way to think about it. What if in this psalm, it is not about each individual creature praising God by themselves, but what if it is all of these creatures coming together to praise God as a group? So you should picture it not as a series of solos, but an ensemble performance. It's as if you uh, had a song where you slowly introduced all of the instruments one by one. First the drums and the bass, then the guitar, then the piano. The sun, the moon, the stars, the plants, the animals. Each one comes in with their offering to the song. But if you stop there, if you just stop with inanimate creation, you just have an instrumental song. And think about how instrumental songs work. If you walked in here and our band was up on the stage and they were jamming on a tune, but no one was singing... Could you actually tell what the song was about? No, you couldn't. You cannot tell what a song is about, whether it's a a worship song or a love song or a protest song. You don't know what it's about without lyrics. And that's how creation is without the final touch of human beings. Human beings, the reason why when God made us, he said not just was the world good, but it was very good, is because the human beings are the vocalists for creation's worship band. For a song to make sense, we've got to have words to it. And and when the words come in, they actually sort of gather up all of the instrumental parts and focus them on a particular subject. That's how God designed creation. All of the elements of creation, from the sky to the sea, the plants and animals, they are a beautiful expression, but without someone to give it words, it's an inarticulate, vague expression. It doesn't mean anything yet. But God made human beings to be the lead singers. And so that's why in verse 11, it says this, praise the Lord, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on the earth, young men and women, old men and children. We are the ones who gather up the beauty of the world and and give expression to the meaning of it all. The, The biblical way of talking about this is actually to talk about human beings as the priests of creation. Around here, we often talk about human beings being the kings and queens of creation made to rule over the world but we're also called priests of creation. We are made to gather up the wonder, the beauty, the worship, and express it to God. This is actually the reason why in Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about human sin. Because of human sin, all creation is groaning until human beings will actually step up and do our job. Without human voices, God's world can only grunt and groan in frustration, trying to express what it was made to say. It's only with us that creation ultimately is able to fully praise the Lord. This passage actually gives us a reason to praise God and all of creation. Look at verse 5. It says, Let them praise the name of the Lord. Why? For at his command they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. 
Now, last week, my wife took our daughter to go to the Art Institute of Chicago. And when she came back, Michelle said, I forgot just how huge that place is. We only got to a couple of different rooms and we could have spent forever there. So I actually went and looked up how many uh, uh, pieces of art are actually in the Art Institute. Uh, this is the answer that Google gave me when I first asked. <laughs> at least, at least 22, maybe 25, 28, even 30, I don't know. It's almost like Google was like, we'll have a five-year-old count them. And the five-year-old was like, I just got bored. I got 22. I got to 22. <laughs> the actual answer is 300,000 works of art. To put that in perspective, if you went to the Art Institute starting now and you spent 12 hours a day looking at art and you only spent one minute looking at each piece, no matter how great it was, you moved on after a minute. If you started today, you would still be looking at art in January of 2021, okay? So it's a lot, a lot of art. That's a lot of beauty in one place. Now imagine, rather than the Art Institute being a collection from thousands of different artists from across history and culture, if it was all the product of one and only one artist. And what if you actually met the person who made it? What would you say to that person? How would you react to them? I mean, there, there are times when you stand before a single work of art and you marvel that anyone could ever have even thought of something that amazing, let alone actually bring it into being. When we marvel at a work of art, we also marvel at the artist who made it. If all of the glory of this world comes from one beautiful mind, how amazing must that artist be? Look at verse 13. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. The, the earth and the heavens have their splendor, but his splendor is above that, is beyond that. The, the world is amazing, but how much more amazing is the one who thought it up, who made it? That creation is great art. It's possible to marvel at it for its own sake, but eventually, the more you study it, the more it points you beyond to the artist who made it. And this leads to the second half of our big idea. Because all creation sings praise to God, Science is good for your soul. Science is good for your soul. I want you to think back to the first message, if you were here, of this series. Uh, this one on the scientific method. We talked about where science begins. And it begins by observing something in the world and asking a question about it. It's that moment where you say, why, why is that the way it is? How does that work? What is that? And that question sparks. It's the, the spark that actually causes a, a scientist to lean in and try to figure it out and, 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 and dig into what's going on there. Interestingly, that spark isn't only, doesn't only show up in science. The place where we see it most often is actually with kids, right? Like when my three-year-old looks out the back window and is like, wow, why are there so many geese in our yard? I'm like, I don't know, but it's kind of creepy. Like, what, what do we do about that? Daddy, there's a squirrel in our tree. Or we were dr like driving down the street yesterday. And he's like, look, a nest. Hey, is that a nest? A nest. It's like he was amazed. When that happens, we don't call it science. We call it wonder. We call it curiosity. We call it joy. But these are the attitudes that are the source of science. And interestingly enough, they're also the source of worship. When science is done well, it is a process that cultivates and amplifies curiosity and wonder. And because of that, it is good for our souls. So many of us, we live with a serious deficiency in wonder and curiosity in our lives. I mean, imagine if instead of visiting the Art Institute, you actually lived at the Art Institute. 
What if every day you woke up under Surratt's Sunday morning, you know, the pointillism, just like Ferris Bueller. And you, as you're walking to breakfast, you went by American Gothic. And in your living room, you had Monet's water lilies hanging up. And if you got bored, you could just walk down the hall and see a Van Gogh or a Picasso or whatever you wanted to see all day long. What would happen over time if you lived in the Art Institute? You would probably get desensitized to all that beauty, wouldn't you? You get used to it, it become normal. I think that's what's happened to us. We, we live in an art gallery that is greater than the Art Institute and the Louvre and the Met and all other art galleries combined. I mean, think about this. If one human being managed out of their own mind to come up with and create one single tree, they would be considered the greatest artist of all time. People from around the world would gather and they would pay good money for just a few moments to gain access to that one tree. And I have seven in my yard. When I was in high school, I took a trip out to Idaho and we were in a really remote part of Idaho. It was so remote that this was actually the town where they tested the first nuclear power plant because it was so far from a population center, they figure if something goes wrong, it's not that big of a deal way out here. So it was very far out there. And they decided, the people there, they said, hey, let's, let's go for a hike up in the mountains. Let, let, let us take you to a really beautiful place. So we hiked a few miles up into the mountains and went to a place called Iron Bog Lake. And this is what it looks like. It's, it's absolutely breathtaking. We, we spent the day there, and it was incredible. And all day long, I kept thinking, wow, I, I wonder how many people have been up here. I wonder how many uh, people have visited this place. And it, it, there's a good number of people, but, it, but not that many. It's kind of remote out here. And then I started thinking, I wonder... How many more lakes like this are out here in this national forest that we're in? I wonder how many, many more beautiful spots just in the state of Idaho that I, I couldn't see that I have no idea that they're out there. What about across the entire country or the entire world? How many of these little, gorgeous, amazing places are there that I've never seen? And then I wondered, I wonder how long this place was here before a human being managed to wander up here and actually see it. How many ages went by? How many starry nights? How many sunsets? How many crisp, clear mornings in this place have passed by with no witness? How long has this place gone completely unseen? Thousands of years? Millions of years? And, and this was just one little place. From a global perspective, it was not all that remarkable. How many beautiful places are there that have never been seen or never will be seen or never can be seen? And not just on this planet, but throughout the entire universe. Think about it. The excessiveness of the world's beauty is overwhelming when you think about it. And it raises the question, why would God create all that beauty in all of those places that no one will ever see? But what if someone actually does see it? What if all of that beauty that God created, he shares with no one but himself? What if he made most of the beauty for no other reason, but simply it makes him happy to have it there for him to know it's there. It's his own private art gallery. If we took this in, if we absorbed that, we should be in awe every single day of our lives. And the tragedy is that we aren't. This is where science can help a bit, especially if we're Christ followers. If we engage in scientific thinking, it reawakens that curiosity to actually notice things in the world. When we study scientific discoveries, it reignites our wonder to say, wow, that's what's really out there. 
If you are a Christ follower, you know the artist who made this world. He is our father. He is our friend. And we of all should, people should want to know the works of art that he has made. Th this psalm, it, it reads like a walk through the art gallery, doesn't it? it? It starts in the heavens. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him from the heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Our, our brains are not particularly well-suited to conceive of how big the universe actually is. Maybe you've heard people try to explain this. So our sun, the star at the center of the solar system, is not actually a very large star when it comes down to it, but it's large enough that it could fit 1.3 million Earths inside of it. Like you feel like the Earth is big, like there's a lot here, I'm never going to see it all. 1.3 million of those could fit in the star that's at the center of our, our solar system. Now, that seems really, really big until you consider the fact that the largest star in our galaxy could fit 9.3 billion suns inside of it, each with 1.3 million Earths inside of it. That's really, really big. But then you think about the fact that the universe has that, how many stars are actually in the universe and how big the universe actually is. Okay, I want you to imagine this. Imagine I've got a penny and the sun is the size of that penny. Okay, so I placed the penny right here on the ground here in St. Charles. Do you know how close the nearest star to us would actually be? If the sun was the size of a penny, the nearest star, which is not that far away from us, four light years away, the nearest star would be in Minneapolis, 350 miles away from here. And at that scale, our galaxy, the Milky Way, would be 7.5 million miles across. That's going to the moon and back 15 times. And that's if the sun is the size of a penny. And our galaxy is incredibly small compared to the entire universe. Do you have any idea how many galaxies there are in the universe? So back in the 90s, astronomers, they, they launched the Hubble Space Telescope and they decided that they were going to point that telescope at a spot in the sky where they didn't have anything. They said, this is a blank spot on the map of the sky. Let's see if we can find anything by pointing our best telescope out there at it. So they picked a spot in the sky that was just really, really tiny. Uh, it was actually, uh, it, the, to get a picture of it, if you were standing in the end zone of a football field and you put a tennis ball on the opposite goal line, that amount of space that that covers in your field of vision, that's how much space in the sky it was covering. So very, very small, 1 24 millionth of the sky. So very tiny, like, prick on the sky. And so they pointed the, the space telescope up there for 10 days just to see what's going to show up on the camera. And this is the image that they got. There are 3,000 objects in that picture. And almost none of them are stars. They're all galaxies. Which means each point of light that you see up there is millions or billions of stars. Each one of those. In a spot in the sky where we thought, there's nothing up there. So, scientists were like, well... That was really cool. So why don't we try it again? So they did it again, and they did what was called the Hubble uh, Ultra Deep Field. That's what they call it. So they pointed at an even smaller uh, piece of sky, and this is the picture that they got. There are 10,000 galaxies in that image. 10,000 galaxies. It was so cool that they actually kept doing it more and more times. They did the Hubble Deep Field. They did the Ultra Deep Field. And the next one was called the Extreme Deep Field. And after that, they all sound like Doritos flavors. You know, <laughs> it's like the Supreme Flavor Blast Deep Field out there. <laughs> and after doing all of these images, astronomers now estimate that there are 2 trillion galaxies in the visible universe. 
That means the number of stars is one septillion, which is a basically meaningless number to most of us, okay? It's one followed by 24 zeros. That's a million, 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 million stars. With that in mind, let's read this together. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the sky. Even if we confine ourselves just to the planet that we're on, God's creation is beyond our grasp. 70% of our planet is covered by ocean, and we basically have no idea what's going on down there. 5% of the ocean has been explored by humans. At best, scientists estimate that we've seen maybe one-third of all underwater species. And what we have found is absolutely mind-boggling. For ages, sailors would go out onto the ocean. They'd come back with tales of sea monsters, and people would be like, yeah, you're crazy. Okay, <laughs> whatever. You've been out there a while. You're seeing things. But it turns out things like the kraken and sea serpents and stuff like that, some of them are real. Like, they're really out there. And the stuff we found is even weirder than the stories. So take the colossal squid. The colossal squid is 30 feet long, and its eyes are 11 inches across, the largest eyes we've ever seen. Up until a few years ago, we only knew that they existed because we would find them in the bellies of sperm whales. They, the sperm whales we'd find, which are weird enough by themselves, would have these incredible creatures on the inside of them. We, we've finally seen a, a few live in the wild. In the deepest parts of the ocean, they're further down than the highest mountain on, on the surface. The stuff we find at those depths is like straight out of a nightmare. Anglerfish and fangtooth and vampire squid and all sorts of stuff. Even the things that we can get access to, they blow our minds. Now, one of my favorite classes of animals is the, the cephalopod. So octopus, squid, cuttlefish, stuff like that. They are extremely intelligent and remarkably strange. Now, I want to show you a video of one, okay? Uh, I want to set it up here. This is going to be a shot of kind of just the ocean floor and some plants. Um, and I want you to pay close attention because there's an octopus that's going to enter the scene, but it happens kind of quick. So I want you to look closely at this. Let's, let's watch this video. Keep watching. That is not computer graphics. This is like straight up real life. That's the footage that some guy found. So it swims away. It's out there. And look what this thing actually looks like. Okay? So these things actually can uh, shift their, their shape and their color to perfectly match their environment. Now, we, we actually have this in slow motion, kind of in reverse, to see just how amazing this transition is. Look at what it is doing here. This was just like, a, like that in the, in the video. There's the octopus, and it's gone. There it is. Isn't that wild? That is so crazy. All right, say this with me. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths. Uh, I recently read this incredible book. It's called The Hidden Life of Trees. Uh, I had no idea how forests work, but this was based on recent science about uh, forests and trees and, and kind of the ecosystem that's there. Uh, it was amazing. I, I thought, and I think most people think, that trees are kind of like solitary lone figures. You know, they're just kind of out there. They don't need anybody. They're kind of doing their own thing. Sometimes they come in groups, but they're really just out there. It turns out that trees are more like uh, herd creatures than they are solitary creatures. They work together in communities. They actually thrive better in forests when they're planted together. They're, they're, they actually have relationships where they share resources with each other. 
turns out most of this is happening under the ground where we can't see it. All the activity is with the roots. The trees have this symbiotic relationship with the, the, the fungi that grows in the earth. And so the, what happens is the trees that are tall enough, they can create excess sugar through photosynthesis, and then they can share that with the fungi that's underneath the ground. And what the fungi does is it actually releases uh, nutrients from the soil and shares it with the, the tree, and they do that back and forth. But because the trees are tapped into this network of, of fungi that's down there, they actually can share resources from, through the fungi from one tree to the other, from root to root. And not only can they share resources, they actually can send messages. They can communicate with each other via that network. So sometimes there are uh, older trees who are higher up in the, in the uh, forest where they can access more light. They will actually share resources with the younger trees that are often their offspring to make sure that they thrive so that they actually grow tall enough where they're going to be, be at the place where they can get that light. Uh, oftentimes, uh, a dying tree will have excess resources it knows it's not going to be able to use, and it will offload it into the network, and it will get shared with all the other trees. They call this network actually the Wood Wide Web. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Uh, there, are, there are trees, when they are being attacked, they will actually release a chemical into the network that tells the other trees, you better, you better uh, produce some of the defenses that we have for that. I've been attacked. You might be attacked next. There are times when they'll release chemicals into the air that will actually attract predators to the bugs that are, that are attacking the tree. So those predators will eat the bugs that are attacking them. It's absolutely unbelievable the way the trees work together. Now, I, I read another book that uh, made me marvel even more. This is, this is one that talked about all the things around us that we don't see. Talked about all the life that's around us that we have no access to with the naked eye. It was a book about bacteria. It was about the microbiome, this, these mini ecosystems of microscopic life that live on every surface, in every room, in the soil, on your skin, in your di digestive system. And normally you're like, that sounds gross, and I don't know why you read that, but it was amazing. Uh, trust me. Uh, we usually talk about bacteria as if it will, it's all bad for you. It's going to make you sick. But it turns out the vast majority of microbes are essential to life. They're not just not harmful to you. They're actually important for you to have. You, we literally could not survive without them. We could not digest our food. We couldn't protect ourselves from more dangerous bacteria. And so our bodies actually cultivate that ecosystem within our body. They do things to draw and attract and nurture the microbes that we actually need. And your body is actually more like an ecosystem, like the rainforest or coral reef, with a host uh, that hosts a, a complex web of living organisms in it. There, there are actually as many bacterial cells in your body as there are human cells in your body. There are as many bacteria in your body as you have cells in your body. And you know how many cells you have in your body? It's more than all the stars in the Milky Way. You are an incredibly complex ecosystem. After I read this book, it was the week in Bible Savvy when we were reading Psalm 104. And I kept coming back to this verse, meditating on it. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures, even just a few inches around you. Let's say this together. Praise the Lord, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds. I wish I had time to tell you all the amazing facts that I gathered for this sermon. I've got like three or four sermons worth of this stuff out there. But I don't have time to do that. But I don't need that time because here's what I want to do. I want to send you out to learn some of that for yourself. This is my challenge for you. After a month of us as a church talking about science, it's time to exercise your curiosity and your wonder and go and learn something amazing about God's world. 
If you don't know how, let me bombard you with some suggestions, okay? Uh, you could read a book. Let me uh, just propose five books. I'm going to put them up here on the screen. These are amazing books. You don't need to be an expert in science to understand them. Uh, one is The Hidden Life of Trees. I already told you a bit about that. Uh, the one is the, about bacteria called I Contain Multitudes. Uh, and then uh, The in, uh, Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. This is a hard book to sum up, but once I picked it up, I could not put it down. It's about a woman who had a cancerous tumor that doctors took out, uh, they took the tumor out of her body decades ago, and the tumor stayed alive in the laboratory and kept uh, producing more cells, and they've harvested those cells, and those cells are actually the most common cells used in medical testing uh, up until this day. Uh, it's also a story about race and culture. It's about ethics. It's about religion. It's about this woman's life. It's, it's amazing. It's a really cool book. Uh, the next book is This Is Your Brain on Music. This is actually a recommendation from our executive pastor, Eric Hampshire. Uh, he used to be a worship pastor, and he read this book to understand how our brains uh, interpret and understand and experience music. Uh, it's written by a guy who is a music producer with a PhD in neuroscience, which makes him like the coolest guy I could ever meet, right? Uh, he explains how our, our brains interpret music, why we like music. It even explains why you think that the music you listen to in high school is the best music that was ever created, and all the other stuff is just noise, right? Uh, if you don't like any of those four books, you will still love the last one. It's called What If by Randall Monroe, um, and this is a guy who is an engineer and also a cartoonist, and he gives very serious answers to very absurd questions, questions like, what would happen if you threw a baseball at 90% the speed of light? Or could you actually make a jetpack out of machine guns pointed down? What would happen if everybody on the planet jumped at the same time and landed at the same instance? He takes those things and he says, that's absurd, but let me answer it for you in very scientific ways. Very cool. Uh, if you don't want to read a book, go listen to a podcast. There's tons of good ones out there. Let me list three. One is called 60 Second Science. 60 second science. It explains a new scientific discovery in, you guessed it, 60 seconds. Uh, the second one is called shortwave. It's very similar. Um, it's, it's a new scientific discovery, but it's, it's explained in maybe eight or nine minutes. Uh, the last one is called Radio Lab. Uh, Radio Lab is a really popular podcast, so you might have heard of it. Uh, go look it up. Uh, look up the episode Colors. Colors. You can thank me later. Trust me. Uh, if you want to watch a documentary or a video online, there's a great YouTube channel. This is a recommendation that actually comes from uh, Ben Radliff, uh, one of our worship pastors. Uh, it's called Smarter Every Day. Smarter Every Day is the YouTube channel. Uh, the guy is an engineer. He explains things you never thought to even ask questions about, and he happens to be a Christ follower, and his wonder at things is contagious. You will love it. Um, if you don't want to watch something, read something, go out and experience something. Go to a museum. Go to a nature center. Uh, even better than, than reading about something is to actually go out and discover something in the world. Go down to the woods. Go, go to, down to the river. Go explore something. I actually have a couple of apps on my phone that help me with this. One is for nighttime. One is for daytime. The nighttime one is a star chart app where I can just point it up at the sky and I can see. Here are the constellations. That's the name of that star. Oh, that's Mars. That's Venus. And I can start to learn the heavens above. That my favorite app that I have is an app called Seek. S-E-E-K. Seek. Seek. Uh, it helps you identify different species of plants, animals, insects, all sorts of stuff uh, all around you. So you can just point it at a mushroom and it'll say, Doo -doo -doo -doo. that's the species of that mushroom. And it's sort of like Pokemon Go, but for real creatures. 
It's got all these games to sort of incentivize. Go find new, new species, new stuff. Uh, my daughters and I, we love tromping around in the field uh, behind our house and just figuring out what's out there, learning, learning just the little piece of land that God gave us. Why do we do all of this stuff? Why learn all this? Because it's good for our souls. When we are curious, it leads to wonder. And when we wonder, it leads to worship. And when we worship, it leads to joy. That wonder gets my eyes turned out for me, even just for a little while. I'm so preoccupied with myself. I'm always thinking about how do I get my own way in this situation. I'm thinking about how great I am at this, or I'm thinking about how terrible I am at that, and I'm always, just, I'm always just thinking about me. But curiosity and wonder, they lead us out of ourselves, into the world, into a much happier, more satisfying life. G.K. Chesterton, the author, he tells a, a little parable about two brothers. He calls them Peter and Paul. And the two brothers are playing out front in the little uh, front yard of their house. And a fairy comes by, and the fairy says, I'm going to offer each of you one wish. So what do you wish for? Paul, the older brother, he's got a great idea. He knows right away. He says, I want to be a giant towering over the world. Because that way, anytime I wanted to, I could walk across the world and I could go see the Himalayas. Or I could walk over here and see Niagara Falls. Anytime I wanted, I could see the greatest wonders of the world. And so the fairy waves his wand, and all of a sudden he's towering over his little house. And Paul immediately goes and walks to see the Himalayas. But when he gets there, he's disappointed because he thought they'd look so much bigger. He walks over to Niagara Falls, and it's no more impressive than the drain in the sink in his house. And he wanders from wonder to wonder, and before long he's so bored that he just falls down in a prairie and falls asleep. Meanwhile, back in his front yard, Peter is there, and he makes the exact opposite wish. He says, I wish that I were just a half an inch tall. The fairy waves his wand, and all of a sudden, boom, right there in the middle of the yard, Peter has shrunk down to half an inch, and he's stuck in the yard. But it turns out the yard is now not so small. It is, he looks around, and the grass is this lush green jungle to explore. And the stones in the middle of the yard are this gigantic mountain for him to scale and climb. And the horizon goes on and on and on. He has so much to explore just in his yard. But he has not come to the end of it, even to the end of his life. First, the meaning of the parable is this. The person who makes themselves big will ultimately find themselves bored. The person who makes themselves small and approaches even the ordinary things in front of them with curiosity that is the person who will never run out of things to delight in. That Chesterton sums up his story by saying this, the world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. I got to get me a hat and some glasses like that guy. Pretty cool. There's a way of approaching science. There's a way of making ourselves big. You're using science to explain everything and master everything. It puffs us up. But in the end, that approach kills both science and our souls. But when science is used in a way to make us humble before the world and the God who made it, it serves the ultimate purpose by propelling us into wonder and worship. And in that case, it is very good for our souls. Let, let me end by looking at one last phrase in this psalm. So the very end of the, the, the very last verse. After rehearsing the vast array of creatures that are worshiping around God's throne, this song turns towards God's people, and he describes us 
as the people close to his heart. The people close to his heart. It turns out that the creator of this vast, mysterious universe is actually near to us. Out of all the inconceivable things that God has made, somehow in the midst of it all, we matter to him. In in the end, this is the most important question. The most important question is not, how much do you know about creation? The most important question is not even, do you acknowledge that there is a creator? The most important question is, Do you know this creator? And does he know you? And does he care about you? Turns out the answer to that last question is yes. He absolutely does. He cares about you more deeply than you could imagine. The reason we know that is because he showed up inside of his own creation to rescue us. Uh, Buzz Aldrin, he's most well known for being the second person to ever step foot on the moon, Uh, What's less well-known about Buzz Aldrin is that he was actually a devoted Christ follower. Uh, He was actually an elder in his church. And so when he went to the moon, as part of his personal belongings that he was allowed to pack for himself on the spaceship, uh, he packed uh, a little bit of bread, a little bit of wine, and a cup. So there on the moon, he celebrated the Lord's Supper. Or if you will, communion. He wasn't Catholic, but if he was, he would be a mastronaut. You could say the moon that day was made of doxala cheese. Uh, See, at some point, I knew I was just doing this for me, okay? (laughs) But that picture of someone celebrating communion on the moon really is a great summary of this whole idea. That human beings were made to go out and explore and discover and learn all of the amazing things that God built into this world. But the end goal of it all is to say, I will worship the God who made it. And not only the God who made it, but the God who stepped into his creation and sacrificed himself because he loves us. Because we are a people close to his heart. Not only do we see the art, we can know the artist. After Buzz Aldrin took communion on the moon, he went uh, on the radio, and for all the world to hear, he read this. And this is actually going to be our closing prayer. It's from Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Amen.